0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. City Council is going to consider a, a bylaw today that would limit the number of payday loan outlets uh, that should be in the city. Now, this is a an ongoing battle that's been happening for quite some time now. And uh, to their credit, City Council seems to be taking the lead on this. The province, of course, came up with some new legislation a little while ago, and we can talk about how effective that's been. One of the uh, champions for the uh, revised payday loan legislation has been Tom Cooper, the director of the Hamilton Roundtable t- round table, for Poverty Reduction. And uh, Tom joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Tom, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today.
1: Good morning, Bill. How are you doing?
0: I'm well, thanks. Listen, uh, your uh, letter op-ed piece uh, is uh, in the Hamilton paper. It's also in the Globe and Mail, which gives it national significance. So this is a story that is not a Hamilton-only issue. This seems to be catching on right across the country now.
1: Yeah, exactly. And Hamilton is leading the way, certainly in Ontario, maybe first in Canada as well, in bringing in this new radial separation bylaw zoning, basically, for payday loan outlets. And well, it, it won't have an immediate effect on lowering the number of payday loan outlets in Hamilton, it will have a long-term effect on, on really reducing their number. And the proposal is to only have only allow one per ward in the city.
0: Now, okay, let's do the math there. That means there would be 15. However, in uh, in preparing for your op-ed piece that, uh, that you wrote, uh, you did a walkabout in downtown.
1: I did. Yeah, I have, uh, I have uh, a gear fit uh, fitness wristband, so it counts my steps. So I was able to walk between a number of these payday loan outlets in our downtown core, and I was able to walk to five of them within 800 steps. And uh, there are many clusters uh, in the city, and we know these payday loan outlets. They set up shop on the fringes of low-income communities, and really try to appeal to people with nowhere else to turn, people who may have bad credit, and people walk in the doors with the best intention of getting a loan without necessarily realizing that the annualized interest rates of these loans are 391 percent. It's it's highway robbery. It, it's legalized usury. And uh, I think this is an opportunity really to cut down on the scope of the ability of these payday loan outlets to, to exploit people.
0: Let's let's talk a little bit about what's gone on here. And I mentioned uh, just uh, before you and I started talking about the provincial legislation that went into effect uh, just after the new year. And uh, that's lowering the rates. Uh, is, 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 is it working? Is it effective? It's nowhere near what you guys wanted to see from the province.
1: No, it isn't. And it's A very little drop. Um, So we saw the payday loan interest rates drop from an annualized rate of 546% a couple of years ago to 391% today. Uh, That's certainly far, far in excess of any other type of loan. It's it's far in excess of the criminal code's criminal interest rate, uh, which is set at 60% by the federal government. And uh, about a decade ago, the federal government allowed the provinces to take over regulation of payday loan companies and allowed them to override the criminal interest rate um, so that they can charge these exorbitant amounts of interest. Uh, So people are are borrowing money without necessarily realizing uh, just the high interest rates and, and are getting trapped into this cycle of debt. So before very long, many people fall thousands, tens of thousands of dollars into debt to these places, and they have no way of escape.
0: Well, and they realize the problem, and and we've talked about this uh, before this legislation was even drafted, uh, because uh, what the companies are doing obviously is simply saying, look at you know we're we're simply helping people out that are kind of stretched between paydays. Uh, but the interest rates and the uh, repayment payments are so significant and so onerous that oftentimes what you'll see is uh, is somebody who owes money to one of these companies walks down, well, as you found out when you walk downtown, a couple of hundred feet away to another one and gets a loan to cover that one. Well, that's only digging the hole deeper, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's available to them. And, and, you know, a lot of the people that we've talked to, Tom, and I'm sure you've received the same sort of feedback, are simply saying, well, what choice do we have?
1: Yeah, exactly. And there's a certain point in that, in that uh, people with low incomes, people with bad credit, often don't have the opportunity to go to the big banks, to go to their credit unions and get small loans for emergency purposes. And that certainly is a problem with the system. But the problem with the payday loan industry is that they are exploiting uh, that reality. And, and they are claiming to provide an essential service. But what they're really doing I think is creating this cycle of of dependency uh, in which people borrow for the first time with the best of intentions. and, And oftentimes the payday loan companies use these aggressive marketing techniques to lure people in the door. You know, get your first loan for 20 bucks. Well, that doesn't seem so bad. So they go in, borrow go back, pay the money back, realize they don't have enough left over to cover their basics in life, like food or rent, and so they have to borrow again. And that's what starts the cycle. It's They're, they're really creating a cycle of dependency for their own products and then claiming that these are necessary services. Well, you know, it's it's wrong. It's uh, a system that has become warped by what's really the the lack of available financial choice and services for, for people with low income. So certainly there's a role to be played by senior levels of government in opening up those opportunities. But at the same time, we really need to cut back on this usury level uh, interest that the payday loan companies are employing and, and clamp down on their aggressive marketing tactics as well.
0: To your point, though, about creating this, this cycle of dependency, uh, statistics and surveys that have been done about the industry indicate that the overwhelming majority of people that use these services, Tom, are repeat customers, uh, yeah. which tells me that, you know, they're digging a deeper hole and figuring I got to, you know, borrow from Peter to pay Paul.
1: That's right. And and the industry is really predicated on bringing those customers back time and time again. So for every new customer a payday loan company gets, there's 15 repeat customers. And that's really where they're raking in the money. That's where they're raking in the profits, getting people to come back time and time again, borrowing more and more, fall, falling deeper and deeper in debt. And, and so it, it's a business practice that, that's really predicated on driving people deep into debt, deep into despair, and deep into poverty.
0: So let's let's talk about what they're doing about this. And, and by the way, one of the things that really galls me is uh, since this new legislation, the provincial legislation, went into effect uh, just after the new year, uh, you've seen the revised commercials that these people are doing, and they're they're advertising the fact that hey, we're charging less now. And <laughs> they're, not, they're not as if, hey, we're doing you a favor. Uh, they're not mentioning, well, the province dictated that you had to charge less.
1: I know. Aren't, aren't they great? They just roll that citizens.
0: right into the, into the lingo, don't they?
1: Yeah, they're great corporate citizens. Yeah, um, yeah certainly the payday loan companies were, were forced to, to lower the interest rates, but it's still extraordinarily high, and uh, they're not doing anybody any favors. Um, they, are, they are in it to pull profits out of communities. And we know a lot of these big companies are are holding companies, uh, you know, owned by overseas interests. And, uh, you know, this isn't money that's staying in neighborhoods that stay that's recirculating in our community. It's money that's being pulled out and and really uh, and and it's really lining the pocket of of the big shareholders of of Western uh, Western Union and and the other big holding companies. So yeah, this is an industry, again, that, that's really just driving people deeper and deeper into debt and, and creating a, a product uh, based on its own dependency. Um, so I think from the, from the larger perspective, a lot more needs to be done. Sure, we need, uh, we need living wages, we need fair social assistance rates, we need affordable housing, but here's an opportunity for the city of Hamilton to step up uh, look at clamping down on on the industry by by limiting their scope and availability in the community hamilton's already taken a leadership role in the past they uh, they br- brought in ontario's first payday loan licensing and what that practically meant is that uh, the the payday loan outlets had to post uh on on these large posters the actual interest rates of uh, of their loans compared to charter banks but they also had to uh, provide credit counseling information to anybody coming in the door. Um, so really, it's about giving people that other alternative. And there's lots of good services out there, uh, particularly nonprofit, but also um, for-profit organizations that can help people get out of debt. And and certainly they are a far better alternative than taking out a payday loan.
0: What about the banks themselves? Uh, I know you've had discussions with uh, with people in the industry and with uh, you know some of the people that are being uh, victimized by this, but at the same time, uh, these things cropped up in the first place, Tom, because in many cases, not just in Hamilton, but in many major cities, the banks abandoned inner-city neighborhoods. I mean, there used to be bank branches of all the major banks in this country in in downtown neighborhoods. They're gone for one reason or another. Well, I think we know the reason. But they're gone, and and in the absence of those financial institutions, these places popped up like weeds in the night, and and all of a sudden, they're the only place in many places, in in many neighborhoods, in many communities, the only place where people have access to money because those banks are long gone. The banks have a role to play here, and not just because they abandon neighborhoods, but because they often sign just like slam the door and say, no, you don't qualify. Uh, there's got to be a discussion, I would think, between the federal government and and these institutions to say, look, you've got to find some way to try to accommodate people so they don't need to turn to these sorts of institutions.
1: Yeah, exactly, Bill. And and that's where the federal government really needs to step up. There's been a vacuum of leadership at at the senior levels of government uh, when it comes to this type of lending. And we know the big banks raked in forty two million billion, forty two billion dollars in profits last year. Um, you know, this is a sector that has the capability of, of providing these small time uh small uh amount loans to people who, who run into a financial emergency, but they're not doing it because they say there's no there's no profit in it. Well they're 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 certainly capable of doing it and you know, it's not willing to do it on its own. We need the federal government to basically mandate them to, to step up. Uh, the credit unions have a role to play too, and there's been a, a few cases in Ontario where credit unions have provided these types of uh, payday loan-like services at, at much, much, much lower interest rates. Um, they're doing it in, in Windsor, and, and there's an organization doing it in, in Ottawa. Uh, Vancouver Vance City Credit Union has has an interesting. Uh, uh, alternative financial uh, accessibility program as well. Um, so you know it'd be great if we could see some local credit unions take a leadership role on this. Uh, we've heard some rumblings but haven't seen anything on paper yet and and you know while while we're waiting uh, people continue to suffer so we need we need our financial institutions to step up definitely.
0: We should mention by the way that these places aren't going away anytime soon even if Hamilton does move on this bylaw today uh, that technically limits it to 15 locations uh, by law they have to grandfather existing locations and there were what over 60 I think in the Hamilton area now
1: yeah there's there's a little under 40 from our last
0: okay all right be
1: official ones there may be unofficial ones that uh, that we don't necessarily know about um, you know people in convenience stores offering this type of service that uh, that uh, may not necessarily be advertised in the same sort of way or licensed um, but yeah, it will take time to reduce the number of payday loan outlets. Uh, what it practically means is no new uh, outlets will be able to set up shop. And we've seen in the last few years, even on the corner of Dundurn and Maine, just on the uh, on the uh, entryway into our city, um, you know, a drive-through uh, uh, payday loan outlet set up in in the old Ta- Taco Bell uh, yeah, restaurant. Yeah. Um, you know, what's that say about our city? First thing you see when you drive into Hamilton is the drive-through payday loan outlet. Um, so hopefully this, uh, this bylaw will prevent new ones from opening up, and over time it will reduce the number. Um, my understanding is that, uh, uh, that ownership won't be transferable. Uh, so uh, if, if somebody decides to purchase an existing payday loan outlet, they won't be able to get a license for it uh, from, from the city. So that will, that will reduce the number as well. Um, but you're right. It's, I, th- I think it sends a much more uh, stronger symbolic message to the industry. And the, uh, the Payday Loan Association of Canada, or whatever its uh, current equivalent name is, is, is actually based in Hamilton. Um, so I think this sends a strong message to that industry that, uh, that we're watching, and uh, we're going to protect our, our residents from, from the exploitation uh, the industry is using.
0: I, I don't want to get too much inside baseball here, but I know the radial separation law is is basically what this is. In other words, they want to limit uh, how many in a certain area can actually be there. Uh, but this bylaw doesn't really uh, get into that uh, too much. And I know that when it came to things like residential care facilities, uh, the city's radial separation bylaw at that time was actually challenged in the courts. Uh, are you comfortable that this one's clean and that, uh, that this is going to be legitimate without any challenges?
1: Well, I'm not an expert in radio separation bylaws. Um, I, I know our, our licensing department and Ken Leanders has has a lot of experience, and he feels absolutely comfortable that uh, that this will pass muster. Um, so I'm sure the payday loan industry is going to do what they're going to do. They may indeed challenge it. Um, that's a fight I'm willing to you know go up against them on on behalf of our community. Uh, you know, again, this is an industry that exploits people. Um, they're going to probably appear in front of council today and, and tell us that they're providing an essential service. Well, they're not. The only thing they're providing is, is despair for their customers. And, uh, you know, this, this has to stop. The exploita- exploitation really has to stop.
0: Tom Cooper from the, uh, of course, the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. We'll see how Council handles this today, and what kind of blowback they're going to get on this. Thanks as always, Tom. Appreciate it. Thank you,
1: Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML.
0: I mentioned on my commentary at ten this morning that the hottest ticket in Toronto these days may not be for the Leafs of the rafters, but for the uh, public gallery at Queen's Park. The uh, legislature gets back to work today after their uh, rather long Christmas recess. And uh, there have been a few changes, as you may have heard in the news over the last little while. Uh, when we last left our guests, of course, uh, Patrick Brown was the leader of the opposition at Queen's Park. And uh, some suggest he was the premier in waiting, waiting just waiting for that date, that June 7th election. Well, Brown is no longer the leader. Matter of fact, Brown's no longer even in caucus. But he is running for the leadership. Yeah, I know there's a certain incongruity to an awful lot of what we're going to be talking about. But that's uh, that's the head scratcher in this whole thing. Richard Brennan, uh, of course, has covered Queen's Park for many, many years, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Keller Show to give his perspective on this. Richard, how are you doing today? Good, Bill. Yourself? Good, good. Uh, I guess one of the main questions that a lot of folks are asking, uh, is Patrick Brown going to show up today?
2: Well, I doubt very much he will, because he'll be busy trying to drum up support for his run for the leadership, I would think, Um, and he really doesn't, at this point, really doesn't need to show up, I don't think.
0: They're going to be talking about him anyway, aren't they?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you pick your superlatives, I mean, it, it, soap opera, sideshow, chaos, you know, what, it, whatever you like to
0: I, I think our friend it. Alan Carter Global called it a tire fire. But, uh, <laughs> I, you got the intention there.
2: Yeah, oh, it's just, it's insane. Uh, but interesting, just the same, uh, for folks to follow. I mean, Given the chaos, the chaotic state, the progressive conservatives are in kind of right now, there's a poll on the weekend that showed that, even so, that Ontarians about 50% of Ontarians would vote for the uh, Tories.
0: Yeah, I, I'm not so sure. I take a whole lot of uh, credibility with polls, and, and especially you know phone polls and robocalls and things of that nature. I, I don't doubt that the conservatives are in the lead right now. But as you and I talked about last week, a lot of that has to do with where the votes are, uh, not, not province-wide. Uh, and, and I guess the question we're asking ourselves right now is how many people that voted for one of the other two parties in the last election are actually considering changing their vote now?
2: Well, I just wonder how much stock people put in into uh, you know, the kind of backstabbing that you might see in a party prior to a leadership race. And, and whether that determines whether they might abandon abandon their uh, vote from that particular party, I, I really don't. I, I think that people have come to, you know, kind of accept some of that stuff. But it, it's like you point out, 10 weeks break, much has happened. Patrick Brown's gone. You know, Kathleen, you know, uh, Wynn's, you know, a trusted supporter. Uh, she's gone. Uh, Sabara, she She's left. And, you know, and Andrea Horvath is, you know, placed her chief of staff and, and campaign director on leave because of accusations that, that he didn't uh, react quickly enough to serious concerns brought to his attention when he was in Manitoba. So it, it's, and, and that Globe and Mail's got a story now where, where that uh, Brown struck up some kind of financial deal with somebody who finally became a candidate. So
0: for a, for a significant amount of money, the the story in the globe for anybody who didn't see it uh, is the allegation is that uh, is that he sold shares of uh, that that bar that he owns up in Barrie. He was a part owner of the place up in Barry called hooligans, and uh, and some uh, air miles points uh, to this other individual who wanted to be the, I guess, the acclaimed candidate up in the Brampton area, one of the new ridings, which did happen. But uh, Brown now denies that that transaction ever uh, took place for $350,000, yet just a couple of days after it was alleged to have happened, he made a deposit of $350,000 into his account. So uh, it, it gets curiouser and curiouser, Richard.
2: He's doing a lot of denying, let's put it that way. And
0: and you know the ad- old Ooh. adage, if you're if you're denying, you're losing.
2: You got it, yep. You're ex- or you're explaining you're losing. He's trying to do a lot of explaining. It's interesting that he's saying that he wants to that he wants to uh, get into the race for the good of the party. Well, I don't think anybody in the world believes that. I mean, he's doing it trying to save face, and that's that's the only reason he's he's throwing his hat in the ring. It's not for the good of the party, as he as he would like to allege.
0: Well, the the discussion we had yesterday, last week, had to do after the global TV interviews that Carolyn Jarvis did, where Brown hinted at that time that uh, that he never actually officially resigned and probably was still the leader of the party. Now, we're told that uh, he, he met with party officials after that, and I, I don't know how soon they, they blew that narrative out of the water, but it was within about an hour after that that he actually went and registered to uh, to be a, a contender. Or I don't know if he's a contender or not, but at least a challenge for the, this leadership that he allegedly abandoned just a couple of days before that. I mean, this you can't write this stuff. Some of the twists and turns this thing is taking right now are just outrageous. It's the old saying, you couldn't make this stuff up. No, I know. This is ridiculous. But but that's the question I think a lot of folks asked when they found out that he had actually registered, Richard. Obviously, he's in there to win, I guess. Or is he in there just to stir the, the, the pot? Uh, let's face it. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious there's no love loss between Patrick Brown and Vic Fideli, the interim leader. As a matter of fact, a lot of folks are suggesting that Fidelity may have been in on the coup that, that got Brown out of there in the first place. Uh, and and obviously, when you see some of the comments of people like Randy Hillier, uh, they never liked the guy, never wanted him to be the leader in the first place. So it's not like they they threw the welcome mat out for this guy.
2: Oh, well, no, they they threw him out. <laughs> it wasn't the welcome mat. They didn't want him. And, uh, and that was painfully obvious uh, when I was still reporting at Queen's Park as as in some of the MPs, the Tory MPs, would come to our office, and they would just shake their head, you know, after he got elected, you know, and say, "What? What's happened? You know, what have we done?" You know, the kind of buyer's remorse.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen during this session because this is important. This is the home stretch heading into this election, and and sessions like this obviously are are used by the the party in power. In this case, it's the Liberals. To try to 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 you know, coast in here, I mean, they they do have a budget. They they've got the hammer right now because they've got a budget and they can throw some goodies at a, a whole lot of people. Uh, the conservative logic and narrative before Christmas, Richard, was look at this is a party that's been there too long. The corruption, man, Well, sure, maybe there is. Uh, and we're the people. We're the guys. We're the we're the fresh face. We're the the new direction. But what's happened since then? has really given the liberals uh, an opportunity to create their own narrative about the PCs now. That, hey, these guys can't get their act together, they don't know who their leader is, they don't know what their platform is, uh, and they've given these guys an awful lot of ammunition. And uh, love her or hate Kathleen Wynne, this is a, a politician that knows how to campaign, and you got to figure that they're sitting in, in Queen's Park right now figuring how are we going to use this stuff against the, against the Tories?
2: Well, and, and don't forget that uh, two of the nominations were overturned because of allegations of uh, you know ballot stuffing. No, I, I don't think uh, I don't think the Tories can point that figure uh, finger uh, you know and accuse others of uh, rot, if you will, because it certainly it's been pointed out even by their interim leader that the the rot goes deep.
0: But this. Whole scenario, and you mentioned about uh, what's happening with the NDP and what Andrea Horvath had to do with her chief of staff and, and political organizer. Nobody's got the moral high ground here.
2: No, and it, you just are, are people going to sit on their hands? Are, you know, are they you know, are they going to vote for the people? You know, the parties that they've always voted for? I mean, this is a this is a crapshoot. This election really is just that.
0: So so, what happens over the next couple of months? I mean, the, the, you know, uh, Vic Fidelli is addressing the media this morning, we're told, and uh, he's, I guess, going to try to say, look, it, everything's calm, nothing to see here. You know, there's, there's, you know <laughs> despite the fact there are fireworks going up, it's like that scene from The Naked Gun. Nothing to see, move on, move on. Uh, and saying that this is not going to detract from our, our appointed task of, of trying to take this government down. But how can it not? With this leadership thing going on, with Patrick Brown somewhere lurking around Queens Park someplace, like the Phantom of the Opera, uh, you know, popping in, popping out, uh, it's got to have an impact on, on the caucus, and it's got to have an impact on, on, on their, their, their focus, really. Oh,
2: and absolutely, and the next shoe to drop, is, is the party going to let him run, let Brown run? Yeah. I think they will. Uh, I, I think it would be a big, big mistake for the party to rule that he can't run. I mean because he does have his supporters, believe me. And uh, there would be there'd be civil war in the party, I think, if uh, he wasn't allowed to run.
0: Is there already?
2: Well, it can get a lot worse, believe me, and I think it would. If he if the if the party said that he couldn't run for the, in the leadership because his supporters would go nuts.
0: So what's going to happen? Uh, I just on, on Twitter just about uh, five seconds ago, Steve Picken just tweeted. Fidelli is speaking to the media now. Uh, Fidelli has said that uh, Patrick Brown does not have my confidence to be a candidate in Barry. Forget about the leadership; he doesn't even want him running for the party up in Barry. That's that's throwing the gauntlet down.
2: Well, boy, I I don't know. It's. It, it's uh, one of those things that you you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And you know, do they throw them out all together? You know, they won't. You know, they kick them out. That you know, they re, you, know, you know overturn the nomination and they won't let them run. run. But I, I think that would just pour gasoline on a fire.
0: But they seem to be doing that anyway. And and really, you have to wonder just what's going to happen and how self-destructive that could be. And, and add on to that, I mean, not only are they looking for a new leader, but I mean, the way things went the last seven or ten days now, Richard, uh, did the conservatives even have a platform? And, and does that give more, you know, cannon fodder to the, to the liberals to say, look, at the, these guys are going to do a hard right. They're going go, to bring back the sex education curriculum. They want to revamp this. They wanna, this is going to be the common sense revolution all over again. I know that's fear-mongering, but that's, that's one of the tools used in politics.
2: Well, I'm just wondering what the, what the liberals are going to do. I can't imagine they can throw any more money at anybody else. I mean, they, they've done all kinds of things, you know, drug uh, programs for young people. And, you know, and the only thing, the next shoe to drop, if it, that could be even a possibility, was they, they say that, you know, f- free tuition for all for university. I mean, I'm not suggesting that's what they're going to say, but, I mean, it's got to, it would have to be something that monumental.
0: Well, how do you pull a rabbit out of the hat? You're absolutely right. I mean, the cupboard is bare. Do they Do they simply, from their standpoint, do they simply say, let's remind you about what we did do, about the tuition for kids, about the drug plans, and, you know, for seniors and for students, uh, you know, that that we've got the road, the, the low hydro rates people seem to like They're not crazy about how they're funding it, but they do like the fact that their bills are lower than they were a year and a half or so ago. So do they hang their hat on that, or do they they, they try I to pull they, something out? I think
2: out. they have to. Because anything else would be so, you know, blatantly, you know, political. If they, you know, if they start going crazy with throwing money, more money at people, I think what they'll just rest on their, their, you know, their reputation, their experience, and uh, and their record. That's I, at this point, I think, you know, because we're not that far away. June seventh ain't that far away.
0: It's less than a hundred days. Uh, that and and you know, given the time frame that the conservatives have set out for themselves. It's going to be, what, March 10th, I think it is, that the director is going to select a new leader? Yeah. That, that gives you like eight weeks until the election. And and at that time, you have to define who your leader is. Uh, you have to deli- define a party platform, because clearly uh, the one that Patrick Brown crafted for them is, is tossed in the blue bin now. They don't seem to want that anymore. They've all
2: tossed out.
0: Yeah. and And that's one of the other interesting dynamics here. I mean, you know, Doug Ford kind of laid the groundwork for that when he said no carbon tax. Uh, you know, and watch me. And just you know, to paraphrase, uh, you know, Pierre Trudeau, uh, and the others reluctantly went along with that. Caroline Mulrooney and, and and Christine Elliott uh, said, "Well, yeah, I guess we're sort of against it now too, because uh, you know they, that that seemed to appeal to that base." But are they going to go and simply rely to their base, or are they going to try to do? What the conservatives seem to be trying to do with the with the, the Brown campaign funds or t- uh, promises was simply to say, I'm going to reach out, I'm going to get disenchanted NDP and, and Liberal voters to come into the tent. Uh, when they play a hard right like this and simply say we're going to play to our base, does that does does that turn those disenchanted voters away?
2: Well, just to back up there a second. I was, uh, what kind of stock do you put in people because Ford took a stand on something and you immediately fall in line? You don't have a mind of your own. Uh, you know, I, w- I was surprised when Mulrooney uh, said that. Uh, you know, she she, w- she would uh, more or less adopt what Ford was saying with that respect to the environment, etc. Uh,
0: well, they both caved in. both well, Christine Elliott no, and her caved I, in I, within twenty four hours. I was, I was literally stunned at that
2: because I thought Christine, particularly, and 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 maybe secondary Mulrooney, but to just jump into, you know, just. Take for granted that Ford's position was somehow going to garner even more support among their supporters and the electorate. I thought, boy, you're flip-flopping even before you get out the gate.
0: <laughs> well, Which, I guess, lends to that credibility that the narrative that I, I'm sure the NDP and certainly the Liberals are going to use towards the Tories is, look, at these guys aren't ready for prime time. They don't have their act together and And, boy, four months ago, I don't think you ever would have envisioned that they'd be able to use that against them. but uh, you know they've they've got not a whole lot of time here to try to to put a new face on this party and show that they really know what they're doing. Well,
2: they don't. and but uh, again, as you and I have talked about many times, is it is it just come down to throw the bums out?
0: Which, which may still be the, the you're right the the mantra that may still be on front I, and center I, I on people's gotta, minds. You know,
2: I, rightly or wrongly, I still think that's a a, a strong uh, well, have a strong impact on this election where people are, you know, uh, are just decided. And, and 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 I'm not throwing dirt on any of the parties, in particular, the liberals, but they've just decided that it's time for them to go. And I think that's the biggest uphill battle that the Liberals have, have got to fight. I'm not saying they can't surmount it, but I'll tell you that is going to be a tough position for them to fight against.
0: And we've seen that happen before. How many times, Richard? I mean, oh. the 2005 federal election, it was just, uh, you know, Gomery and all that other stuff, they just said, you know what, They've been the Liberals have been there too long. It's, it's, it's time to clear the place out. Yep. Uh, we saw that, obviously, with, with what happened. Frankly, you know, the same thing, I, I think, with Ernie Eves. Uh, You know, they just say, enough of the common-sense revolution, it's time to turn the page, we're going someplace else. Uh, It does happen. Uh, It it happened to the Harper government just a a couple of years ago.
2: Yeah, and they were were only in there for 10 years, so...
0: And it's just, I guess, you know, everybody has a best-before date. And I guess that's the overriding question in this whole next three or four months, is uh, have the Liberals reached that in in the minds of the public? Certainly for, for an awful lot of people, they have... But there's there's this area that you and I talked about before, this, this 905, the G T A H A and, of course, the 401 corridor up through the, the KW Guelph area uh, that seems to be a, a liberal stronghold. I mean, that's where they st- seem to be winning seats, and that's how they held on to power. I mean, in hindsight, we have to go back a few years, and and you mentioned this. Uh, in one of our earlier discussions, uh, nobody gave the Liberals a hope in hell of winning the last uh, provincial election. Yet they came up with a majority because they concentrated on that voter-rich area, and that that was their redemption.
2: And they'll do they'll do the same again. And let's face it the brown the brown fiasco, you know, the chaos inside the party has given the Liberals no end of ammunition. Even even in the kind of uh, bottom. Area that they're fighting back from, they've got all this stuff just a fling at the conservatives and 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 draw attention, the public's attention, to to the madness that's going on. And 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 like you said, they will say these these guys can't they can't govern, they can't look after themselves.
0: Or is all of this Patrick Brown stuff and everything else just white noise to? to a voting public that just said, you know what, it's time for a change. We don't know yet.
2: But- we don't know yet, but I, I'll be very interested to uh, to see what the party decides and whether they're going to let Brown run. Uh, I, again, to repeat myself, I think it would be a huge mistake for them not to let uh, let him in.
0: Well, if it's uh, Vic Fezella's choice, I think we already know where he's going, but well, I guess I others... <laughs> Vic. Vic's got it out for us. No it seems there. that way. Uh, this is uh, It's great uh, great theater, anyway. We'll see how it plays out over the next couple of days. Richard, thanks as always. Great having you on the program again. Thanks, Bill. Richard Brennan, of Bye-bye. course, a uh, long-time uh, Queens Park uh, reporter and uh, journalist for the Toronto Star. You're listening
1: to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
0: Friday was a big day in the uh, investigation south of the border by uh, Robert Mueller about uh, potential Russian involvement in the uh, U.S. federal election that uh, resulted, of course, in Donald Trump becoming president of the United States. Uh, Trump, of course, still denies that the Russians had anything to do with it, notwithstanding the fact that every, every security agency and intelligence agency that has investigated this in the United States has said, yes, there was some sort of collusion. Well, On Friday, 13 Russians were indicted as part of the investigation into election meddling. Uh, The Russian government scoffed at the indictment. However, several people who worked at these troll factories say the charges are well-founded. And in a related story this morning, uh, we found out that uh, Special Prosecutor Mueller has uh, laid charges against a U.S. lawyer for making false statements about communications with former Trump campaign neighbor Gates and for withholding documents uh, that had been uh, asked for. So this is getting deeper and deeper. What are the implications and what's going on here? Joining us to talk about this is John Coloroso, PhD professor of anthropology and linguistics and languages, an expert on the people, the conflicts in history, and the culture of the Kyrgyz region of Russia, also a back-channel advisor for the Clinton administration on Russian matters, John, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
3: It's good to be back, Bill.
0: Listen, I uh, try to add some clarity to this. This is this is going us and seemingly coming at us now at, at such a rapid pace. Uh, talk to us a little bit first of all about what these indictments mean, and we'll talk about the Russian reaction in a second.
3: Well, I think the indictments uh, mean that in the legal realm, the collusion or the Russian, I say the Russian effort to uh, disrupt and influence the American election is now a, an accepted legal fact, in a sense, not a conviction, but certainly that this is at the stage where a court has recognized these uh, indictments. They've been issued. The chances of getting our hands on, American hands on any of these guys, is probably about zero. But nevertheless, uh, as a, a definition of what Russia actually did in some way it's a beginning it's a start.
0: The interesting thing about this as I, I tried to, to sift through some of the information over the weekend though John mm-hmm. is as you, as you just mentioned at the point that's well taken, the chances of, of actually prosecuting any of these people are slim and none. that's probably not going to happen mm-hmm. but they seem to indicate that what this does do is lay the foundation for further charges at this end of it against uh, against Americans who may have colluded with these 13 and others
3: You're precisely right. <laughs> Unwitting and perhaps uh, witting partners in this effort, and I think uh, I don't know the details. There was some man in California who actually has been uh, apparently caught up in this, Um, and this Isvan, this this lawyer um, that has been charged today. You know, this is uh, ripples are spreading out, and this has been laid down as a major uh, anchor point for further uh, investigation into other people now. I'd love to know how Mueller got 13 names out of probably a group of maybe 50 or 60 people that were devoted to uh, the Russian effort, uh, but um, uh, certainly it's, it's a start, and it's important because it means that to challenge or to undercut, and this this came, I saw this from this fellow, Jim Naftali, the former director of the Nixon Library, and it has to be pretty well a, a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. He said that any the efforts to challenge or denigrate right now, Mueller uh, could be construed as treasonous. Uh, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that, but certainly it takes the Mueller uh, effort uh, to a plane in which challenges against it now run up against serious legal issues. The, the, the challenges are political, but they can be countered by legal response. But Mueller, I think, is just beginning to rake in, rake in uh, people, and uh, some of these will probably be quite close to Trump himself, if not Trump, in, in fact, uh, as an active participant in this.
0: Well, we were told in a report that I saw over the weekend, uh, and this is from a source within uh, uh, the investigative office, uh, mm-hmm. suggesting that nobody is beyond suspicion at this stage, including Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, which is a rather dire warning, I guess, and a shot across the bow, uh especially in light of the fact there was a story about 10 days ago that uh, that Trump was considering uh, trying to get rid of Mueller once again mm-hmm. as he tried to do last summer uh i'm sure he's being advised to back off right now
3: yes i think that it would be trump's natural reflex to try to fire uh, you know like like the apprentice you're fired and just fire Fire Mueller, fire Rosenstein, uh, and you know maybe replace Sessions and, and do do all this, which apparently I guess by American law he's he's empowered to do. But there will be fantastically negative political consequences to this. Uh, I think an important distinction uh, should be made here at this point, and I think that the Americans really uh, have to um, begin to think this way. Uh, there will be a future, supposedly, <laughs> for this for the United States in some form. Um, And I think it's not going to be the grand glowing one that they had envisioned prior to this debacle. But I think that what's really going on has to be viewed politically and not just legally. Trump is politically, uh, transparently um, uh, guilty of dereliction of duty and violation of his oath of office. And not to mention that he seems... To be mentally incapable of really fulfilling the duties of the office, uh, I think for the first two, a standard procedure of impeachment uh, is now completely warranted. Despite you know the fact that perhaps it cannot be proven legally that he did this, this or that, or some subordinate did this or that for his hat, maybe on his behalf. Politically, he's in <clears throat> dereliction of duty and violation of his oath. I think if he's incompetent, and I think it's clearly obvious as well, then that's uh, the 25th Amendment, and that starts with the cabinet. Now, <clears throat> I side with David Trump, uh, whose excellent book I just finished a week ago. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm, Trump, I'm,
0: I'm I'm halfway through it. Uh,
3: that Trump is enabling, is being enabled rather by the Republican Party for a variety of reasons, variety of strategies. But you know that that's all you know. That's all sort of craziness and madness. But I think some of those people, and maybe Carl and Ryan are the ones that should leave this, have to step back and say, where are we going with all this? Uh, are we going to have some kind of short-term victories that will be undone when the liberal restoration takes place? And that's maybe going to happen unless the Russians scuttle that one, too. Um, but I do I don't think people are thinking politically very clearly here. Uh, and I think one reason is that most of them are lawyers, and they're just focused in on what's unfolding legally. Um, and I don't think that that's that's enough. I don't think that's enough of the picture. And I think the other picture, the political picture, is crystal clear. I think it's time for the United States to act.
0: The the concern here, though, is, is all it takes is one denial from Trump, which he continues to do, that there was no Russian collusion at all, period, end of sentence. He doesn't say, yeah, there was probably some, but I wasn't part of it. He just wants to to nick this whole thing in the bud. And, uh, and there is that element within the Republican Party and certainly among the, the base, the Trump base, that simply take him at his word and said, well, he said it's not true, so it's not true.
3: Yes, I know. There's there, there's this in spite of
0: overwhelming evidence to the contrary.
3: Yeah, there's this thirty-something percent. I've never understood the obsession with that number because even if he's forty percent approval rating, then sixty percent of the people don't want him, and don't approve, and by the the algebra of democracy, that sixty percent is what counts. <laughs> um, I think the Trump base. Uh, I think there are a couple of things we should say about the Trump base. One is that. Um, that they don't want to be governed. They uh, perhaps have legitimate complaints about things that go against their traditions and their particular view of what how life is meaningful and so forth and so on. Uh, I think they have to understand and accept the idea that if they don't have a government, they're going to have something else. They're going to have a warlord or they're going to have a gangster head. And one sees this in urban centers where huge populations sort of drift away from effective government control. And what happens? Gangs emerge, like in MS13 or whatever that is. Um, And I think that they have to understand that. And I think the other thing uh, that we have to to look at is some of the shows on TV, like these detective shows or whatever. Whenever a federal figure is introduced, there's always a a nuance of evil, corruption, domination, and so forth. And this is coming right out of the entertainment industry. Um, And like I say, Longmire and so forth and so on, all these shows, they all do this. Uh, And this is feeding into this distress for the federal government. Um, And uh, I I think that really, in some ways, Hollywood and the TV industry have to scrutinize their, their role in setting down a kind of popular culture that has sort of pushed the federal government into an evil role.
0: Well, and, and again, that's the Trump narrative, isn't it? In other mm-hmm. words, the the closer Mueller seems to get, or the more times indictments are when somebody like Flynn uh, rolls over, all of a sudden the FBI are the bad guys. And and again, that Trump base seems to buy into that. One of the, the law and order institutions in that country that has been revered for sawing is now reviled simply because their guy, their president, says to do so.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. We do to understand Trump in a sense. Trump is a kind of bad fish rotting from the head that has... Use the law to its advantage uh, in ways that really are, are, are preposterous and, and really reflect the, the inadequacies of american legal uh, legal institutions and and actual uh, laws. I think that he himself is is thinking now uh, entirely legalistically and um, just hoping that maybe this lawyer Cohen, will be able to make his magic and pay somebody to go away or whatever once yet once again um, And I don't think that looking at what's going on now uh, uh, legalistically is the proper way to do it. I think that outside the U.S., from our viewpoint, we should look at it politically. And I think the Americans should do so, too. And I think that Trump will never do this. Trump is is damaged. I have a linguistic diagnosis on Trump, but we can talk about that later.
0: Well, yeah, you mentioned that to us a couple of months ago, and I know that a number of your uh, uh, coworkers uh, in in the same field have studied Trump and his techniques and uh, and. Uh, have some serious concerns about that, uh, as others do. Uh, let me ask you though, John, about the other side of this, the Russian side of this. Yes. Uh, you've worked with these people, you've negotiated with them, you've sat across the table from them uh, for years now, yes. uh, and, and there are still people that naively seem to think that, well, what what could the Russians really have done to influence this election? And, and, and I always, when I hear those comments, I think you really don't understand what Vladimir Putin is and what he's capable of.
3: Well, Vladimir Putin is a very capable person. Um, he has very well. It's eroding somewhat, but he still has a substantial majority support of his population. So domestically, he's in a strong position, and this allows him to be adventurous and clever and sort of sneaky on the foreign scene. Um, and I think that uh, the only the only place where he's vulnerable is financially because of his supporters, not he himself. But his inner circle is based upon uh, all these oligarchs, these rich fellows that have their money uh, quite uh, clandestinely or illegally, and um, uh, the sanctions are hurting these people. They're hurting Putin's inner circle, which is the effective circle that he needs to to really function as the leader. And they want, at all costs, they want sanctions lifted, and Trump has refused to put in further sanctions despite uh, the the Congress voting these in. And... uh, uh he is as cnn said uh, i think today this morning uh he's doing russia's work which is absolutely true and they have something on him and i think the most interesting thing to, to raise here and i don't see any clear answers to it is what in the world were three top heads of russian intelligence doing talking to cia and uh and dan Coats, of it, the director of national intelligence uh, and perhaps who knows who else, because uh, the, the, the military intelligence guy, uh, Bortnikov, no one knows with whom he was speaking. <laughs> so something was interesting going on there right, right before, before the end of January. One reasonable surmise is that it has to do with security or had to do with security at the Olympics. But I have information, I believe it, that they also brought material on Trump. Uh, and that neither Pompeo nor Coats were particularly willing to accept it, but the Russians insisted on giving it over, that that can't be good for Trump. And my guess is that if these agencies don't act on this, that the Russians will dump it to the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Um, but that this was impressive for all three to come, one of whom, Naryshkin, was under um, the SVR, Foreign spy service um, was under sanctions, and, and they do have a mechanism for temporarily allowing someone under sanctions to come in for important, important government um, information. And that's that's very very interesting development. It's still unclear, but that impinges upon um, this this business with the the uh, uh, indictments. It may have helped Miller come up with indictments, although I doubt that he's in touch with these other agencies. Um, but, but something, forces are gathering here, but Trump still will constantly deny it and constantly focus on himself and his innocence and so forth. I think these are meaningless statements. I mean, someone asked me what the State of the Union message was about. It, so it was like a duck quacking. It had, <laughs> it had meaning, but it did not provide information. It did not tell us anything about what Trump intends to do or what the Republicans in the, the Congress intend to do or anything like that. This is just window dressing. Um, so I do think that if Trump continues to deny it, and he'll do it even when they're dragging him out by the heels, you know, all the teenagers marching, marching for gun control, uh, something like this, something dramatic and and you know historically unprecedented happens to this man. I think he'll still be denying it uh, because his intellectual capacity is damaged.
0: Well, and as uh, David Frum pointed out uh, in the book and in subsequent interviews, of course, as he did the book tour, uh, Trump and, uh, is a man that has no shame. I mean, yes, because some people are trying to draw the comparisons between Trump and Nixon. Uh, and Nixon's resignation in 1974, but he said Richard Nixon, for all his foibles, uh, apparently had some sense of self and understood, look it, I can't go through this because of what it might do to me and to the country. He says Trump doesn't have that that, that barometer. That That's not evident there at all. So uh, he's totally oblivious to the impact it's having on the country, to the to the office of the presidency, or anything else. Mm-hmm.
3: No, exactly, tr- exactly true. I would diagnose Trump as having what they call frontotemporal dementia, uh, no one knows the actual cause of this. Uh, it is basically atrophy of the frontal lobes so that extends backwards from that zone along uh, the, the uh, temporal portions, the side portions of the brain, uh, where the speech areas are. Uh, and it comes in three flavors. I think the particular flavor he's exhibiting is called progressive non fluent aphasia which means he's going to lose his speech capacity. So I saw him slurring back in December. I watched it several times. I tra- have a Harvard degree in phonetics. <laughs> he, he's got trouble. Uh, it, it's episodic. And uh, when I heard that he d- will not read anything anymore, and once it read to him, I thought, well, that's a, a typical uh, near-end stage of, of this, uh, this problem. This problem may be solved by biology, by a man being totally devoid of linguistic capacity, speech or comprehension, perhaps as early as this summer. By that time, though, he could have done still massive damage. And I think that um, the, the, the problem here in part, and this is part of the Trump base, is there's a very grandiose self-image entertained and embraced fervently by most Americans and I think the idea that you really could end up, you know, America could end up being a little ineffective, dinky country call it, watching China and Germany and Russia call the shots is something that you just can't comprehend.
0: Well, people have to be paying attention. John, there's so much more of this. We'll have to pick this up for a future conversation. Thanks so much for this today. Uh, you're welcome, Bill. Great talking with you again. John Calaroso, of course, uh, expert in uh, in Russia's uh, involvement in uh, what's gone on here. And uh, more to come on that one, you can be sure.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900
3: CHML.